Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk. Today I'm going to be talking about something that I've honestly seen a lot about on social media over the past year or so, and is something that I was never talked about in grad school, or actually ever even learned how to treat specifically, and that is religious trauma. So I wanted to talk about this because I do feel like it is a buzzword seen a lot on social media now, but not a lot of people necessarily know what it is. I also wanted to make this episode because religious trauma, just like any other trauma, can look different for all people, and many people may not even realize what they have experienced is religious trauma, especially if they do not know any different. I also feel like bringing this episode on now was good timing because last week's episode, episode 85, I had on Reverend Katie O'Dunn, and in February, I had Sabrina Blank. Uh, that was episode 81, who both discussed faith in the context of mental illness and both mentioned the harmful messages that the faith communities sometimes communicate to those struggling. I also feel like this episode needs to come with a large disclaimer. I'm not saying having faith or having a religion is innately bad. I tell individuals all the time that prayer, if you are religious, can be an amazing coping skill. However, religion or a faith base is not always a positive experience for everyone, and in many cases, it can be really harmful for people. So in the words of my friend, Dr. Patrice Berry, who I had on in episode 70, there is a faith that heals and a faith that hurts. And today we're going to be talking about the faith that hurts. So if you have a religious background, I hope you continue to listen to this episode, despite some things that I talk about potentially being hard to hear. And if you don't have a faith background or have experienced religious trauma, I also hope that you continue to listen and learn. My goal for this episode is to provide insights and lived experiences on how religion can be traumatizing for individuals when used as a weapon for hate or control, rather than a means of love and acceptance. Thus, this episode may seem one-sided in nature, and that is intentional, because I'm solely focusing on the aspects of religion that can be traumatic. We often don't experience trauma from a love and acceptance space, thus it's not pertinent to this episode. I also want to make the disclaimer that I'm speaking about religion broadly, but most of my examples come from a Christian or evangelical perspective because one, that is what I am personally most familiar with as somebody that grew up both Catholic and Presbyterian, and two, that is where most of the research on religious trauma lies. 
Additionally, given that this episode is about religious trauma, we touch on things such as sex, LGBTQ plus identities, mental health, shame, etc. in negative contexts, which may be triggering for some people. So I just want to make that disclaimer before we jump in. So first off, what is religious trauma? When you look up religion and mental health in research, most often you will find research showing a positive relation between religion and mental health. It is well known that religion and spirituality can be a source of meaning, connection, and strength for many people. However, not all individuals find religion as a source of strength in their life, and for many, religion can cause harm both psychologically and spiritually. Despite experiencing religious trauma, individuals often seek that spiritual connection that both organized religion and spirituality can bring. Thus, I think it's important that we discuss how religion can be detrimental to mental health, not just how it positively impacts mental health. So what is religious trauma? In 2011, Marlene Winnell coined the term religious trauma syndrome to describe the severe mental stress experienced by former fundamentalist Christians who leave their religion. She asserted that restrictive religious teachings can be toxic and create lasting damage in the cognitive, emotional, social, and physical realms. In 2013, Allison Stone expanded on Winnell's definition and defined religious trauma as pervasive psychological damage resulting from religious messages, beliefs, and experiences. Unlike many forms of trauma that occur through acute incidences, religious trauma generally accrues over time through long-term exposure to messages that undermine mental health. So I surveyed my Instagram followers and asked if they have ever experienced religious trauma. Of those who answered, nearly two-thirds, so 65% of individuals, said yes. I also had people share um, that although what they experienced, they would not consider traumatic, so they said, no, I have not experienced religious trauma, but they have experienced hurt within a religious system or negative messaging. So now I'm going to talk about different types of religious trauma. As defined earlier, religious trauma is psychological damage resulting from religious messages, beliefs, and experiences. There are many different ways individuals can experience religious trauma, and just because two people experience the same thing does not necessarily mean it was traumatic for both of them. So that goes back to what I just said a few moments ago when I pulled my Instagram followers that some people said no, they wouldn't consider what they experienced traumatic, but it was hurtful. So in the next little bit of the podcast, I'm going to cover different areas individuals may have experienced religious trauma. Many of these topics areas came from me surveying my Instagram followers about their experiences with religious trauma. I am not going to cover every topic submitted, but we'll discuss the most common themes and areas of trauma that individuals shared they experienced. I also want to note that just because someone may experience these things and not find them traumatic, that is just as valid. Like I said a second ago, two people can experience the exact same situation and one finds it traumatic and the other doesn't. Although there are certain events that we would all likely agree are traumatic or at minimum stressful and scary, it is our response to the event and how it impacts us that determines if we define it as traumatic or not. So as you listen through, um, 
really the bulk of this episode as I talk about the different areas, if you've experienced it but don't think it's been traumatic or negatively impacted you, I want you to know that that is just as valid. So the first area I want to talk about that many individuals find traumatic is the role of women and sexism. This was actually the most popular response I received when asking what areas of religious trauma someone experienced, tied with the second thing that I will talk about here in a few short minutes. So although I'm not a religious scholar, nor can I possibly cover all the religions in this episode as I made the disclaimer at the beginning, I am going to speak about religion generally. So when we think about the most popular religions in the world, which are Christianity and Islam, and then I'm also in this section going to talk about Judaism simply because that's the other religion I'm most familiar with, we can reflect on how religion has been used as a patriarchal tool to elevate the status and power of men over women. So both the Hebrew Bible and Christian scriptures contain stories of violence against women. Some examples are Genesis 34, 2 Samuel 13, Judges 11 and 19, Esther 1, just to name a few. There are also many scripture passages that suggest males to be dominant over women. For example, from Ephesians 5, to 24, wives be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husbands is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husband. This is a complete side note, but when my husband and I got married, I made it very clear to the pastor that there would be no readings about wives being submissive to their husbands, nor anything about marriage being between a man and a woman. Um, The first part being because I view a marriage as a partnership and the two parties are equal. Second part being because, as you probably know if you have followed me for any amount of time, um, I am very pro-equality for LGBTQ plus individuals and do not believe that marriage is defined between a man and a woman. So whether implicitly or explicitly, religions that hold this ideal that women are submissive to men communicate to women in abusive relationships that they should stay in a relationship and, quote, try to be better wives or, quote, forgive and forget, especially if divorce is frowned upon in the religion. So another side note related to this, I think of Josh Duggar and his wife, Anna. Um, I will be honest, I am not up to date on all the ins and outs of the Duggar family. And if you have no idea who I'm talking about, look up 19 Kids and Counting or just Google the name Josh Duggar. So Josh Duggar, in brief, is a convicted sex offender. Um, He has a history of molesting minors as well as um, child pornography. He is currently imprisoned and has admitted to being unfaithful to his wife, whom he has seven kids with. Yet his wife, Anna, has stayed by his side. And like I said, I'm not super into the Duggar family, but of the brief things I read, a lot of perspectives out there believe that Anna feels trapped in her marriage because of her religion. She has taught to be very submissive, taught to be faithful, and that possibly she blames herself for his behavior because she should, quote, be a better wife. In Judaism, uh, shalom bayit, meaning peace in the home, is an important Jewish value that refers to our harmonious home in which all who dwell are nurtured and responded. 
um, and respected. Sorry. I will say that Judaism overall, from what I understand, really respects and holds women to a high standard. However, this particular concept has been misused by some who place on women the sole responsibility for maintaining peace in the home. And it has been used to pressure women to remain in or return to homes in which they were victims of abuse. Similarly, there are texts and interpretations um, in Islam that convey women are less than men that are misused to justify abuse against women. Outside of abuse and expanding on the general topic of submissiveness, many religions teach that women shall be submissive to their husbands, which also speaks to the heteronormativity in religion and the expectation that all women are going to marry. Um, But regardless of that, uh, many religions teach women to be submissive to their husbands and that men are the head of the household. Women are there to play a supportive role to their husbands and really stay silent, not have an opinion. In Islam, men are the dominant positions um, and women are to be obedient to their husbands, fathers, and sons. Women are often also suppressed in the scripture outside of their relationship with their husband. For example, in the Bible in Titus, there's a passion that calls for women not to teach or preach in public assembly because that would constitute the authority of a man. In modern times, women are still excluded from leadership roles in many religions, including the Roman Catholic Church. Although, fortunately, we do see women in leadership positions in many other denominations. I will say there are examples of women being held equal to men and women being in leadership positions in religious scripture, as well as current times. However, as I said at the beginning of this episode, as this episode is focused on religious trauma, I'm going to focus on the aspects and messages from religion that could be dramatic and constantly hearing if you identify as a woman, that you are less than men, if you are to be submissive, if you are to stay in abusive relationships, things like that, that can definitely be very traumatic. Hello. Would you like to learn to meditate? Or perhaps you've meditated for quite some time. I started around 50 years ago. As you know, meditation is good for lots, including stress reduction, letting go of anxiety, self-exploration, and ultimately awakening. If meditation or awakening interests you, check out my podcasts on Awakening Together with William Cooper. All of them are free. Both the description and the link are in the show notes of this podcast. The other most popular area of religious trauma that people reported to me was purity culture. So purity culture is a term often used in relation to the evangelical movement's attempts to promote the biblical view of purity by discouraging dating and promoting virginity before marriage, often through the use of tools such as purity pledges, symbols such as purity rings, and events such as purity balls. Um, Women were told things like modest is hottest, suggesting that female clothing can cause a man to lust if it's too revealing, and thus it's her responsibility to dress in a way that is pure. 
this kind of ties into what we were just talking about, about women and the role of women and sexism. Uh, in purity culture, virginity is prioritized. And if you lose your virginity before marriage, nobody will want you. That is the message that it sends. On the same vein, it is taught that you should obtain from sex until marriage. And if you don't, you are cheating on your future partner. Sex on your wedding night is taught to be this amazing thing, which also sets false expectations for many. So the purity culture movement began in the 1990s as Christians who were children or teens during the beginning of the 1960s sexual revolution era, era began to have children of their own. The number of premarital sex partners had also increased substantially from the 1970s to the 1990s, and teen pregnancy rates were at an all-time high. Thus, at this time, many evangelicals were reacting to this and attempted to ground sexuality in biblical ethics. So in 1992, True Love Waits, which is a Christian sex education program, emerged, and about four years later, Josh Harris published his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which promoted abstinence and popularized the idea of courting rather than dating. Tying back into my aside earlier about Josh Duggar, um, I can't remember their exact uh, religious affiliation, but all 19 of the kids that, I mean, I guess some of them are still younger, but of the older ones engaged in courting um, before marriage. So since the launch of the True Love Waits movement, premarital sexual activity for both teenage boys and girls, significantly dropped between 1995 and 2002. Additionally, teen pregnancy rates have continued to drop dramatically over the past 30 years. So although one may think that these declines are due to the true love's weight movement, a 2009 study by Rosenbaum found that the sexual behavior of teens who had taken a purity pledge does not actually differ from that of non-pledgers. And a 2005 study from Bruckner and Bierman found that STI rates did not differ between pledgers and non-pledgers. So really, it sounds like just trends overall went down. And we know teen pregnancy rates have gone down in part due to increased access to birth control. Um, however, individuals who support purity culture are supportive of the true love weights movement may claim that these decreases in sexual activity and t pregnancy rates are due to purity culture so in my research of purity culture i found that there are criticisms both among christians as well as non-believers so some of the criticisms among christians include the overemphasis on the importance of sex in relationships adding unnecessary rules to male-female relationships, both platonic and romantic, instilling fears when warning individuals about the pitfalls of dating, and the idea that waiting to have sex until marriage will deliver a happy ever after ending, such as a great marriage and great sex life, setting unrealistic expectations for young Christians. Non-Christians often criticize the fact that this movement promotes shame and fear, promotes gender-based stereotypes, and excludes any relationships that are not heterosexual. Okay, so now you might be wondering, how can all of that be traumatic? So we know that purity culture can be harmful mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. It can make you feel ashamed of your body, sexuality, and gender identity. 
It also creates strict roles for men and women, which enforce patriarchal ideas about how men and women should behave. Individuals who have experienced trauma due to purity culture often feel disconnected from their body due to feelings of shame and confusion arising when their body naturally experiences sexual desires, thoughts, and dreams. I've mentioned the uneven rules for men and women, and we talked about religion and women a little bit ago. However, although purity culture expects both men and women not to engage in sexual behavior before their wedding night, it is considered normal for men to have sexual desires and feelings, whereas women are not expected to be interested in sex until their wedding night. It is also a women's job not to cause a man to give in to sexual desires by wearing anything considered risque or sexy, putting the man's responsibility of sexual purity on women. Ultimately, this can cause a lot of shame, unrealistic expectations, and distress for women, not to mention purity culture does not mention non-binary or intersex individuals, excluding a whole group of people. In addition to sexual shame, purity culture can also cause sexual dysfunction, since individuals in purity culture are not educated on what normal sexual processes look like, they may not realize when something goes wrong, or may not know how to proceed if they do recognize a problem, resulting in sexual disorders or anxiety around sexual behaviors. Many people also experience religious trauma in the area of mental health. So I spoke about this on last week's episode with Reverend Katie O'Dunn. I have also touched on it in episode 81 with Sabrina Blank, as well as episode 26 with Kate Moomy. So please go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't. Before we get into religious trauma due to messages surrounding mental health, I do want to acknowledge that religion and spirituality can have a positive impact on mental health. As I said at the very beginning, prayer can be a great coping skill for those who believe and have a re- having a religious community can foster a sense of belonging. A number of research studies have found that devout individuals have fewer symptoms of depression and anxiety and better ability to cope with stress. And here comes the dialectics that I love. Unfortunately, many individuals receive harmful message about mental health from religion. So some religious groups believe you are possessed by demons or spirits if you have a mental illness, or that a mental illness is a punishment for something you have done wrong. Other messages from religious groups may be things like, quote, you need to pray harder when you're struggling with something like depression, or that mental illness means you're not, quote, close enough to God, or you have, quote, strayed away from God, or that God is punishing or abandoning you. All of these messages are harmful, contributing to the stigma of mental illness and can cause additional feelings of guilt, shame, and distress, or cause depression and anxiety itself. Messages like these may also dissuade individuals from receiving mental health help from licensed professionals, and if they do seek help, They often do so from a means like pastoral counseling, which could potentially make things worse. I do want to note that pastoral counseling has a time and place, but most pastoral counselors are not licensed mental health professionals, and there is no license for Christian counseling. It's an unlicensed profession, and thus, these individuals aren't trained in diagnosis and treatment of mental illness. I have also personally heard stories from patients of my own who have gone to counseling through their church and were basically shamed and made to feel worse because these messages that probably brought them into counseling in the first place were just reinforced. 
Outside of direct messages about mental health, the way you perceive God or religion can have a positive or negative impact on your mental health. So if you have a loving, kind perception of God, feel that God is supportive, it is going to benefit your mental health. But if the teachings of your religion make you view God as punitive, threatening, or unreliable, that is going to negatively impact your mental health. So another area and one area I see a lot personally, in addition to trauma um, about mental health, is trauma related to messages about the LGBTQ plus community. So as a psychologist who works with a lot of LGBTQ plus youth in the South, the number of times I have heard my patients tell me, or honestly their parents or guardians tell me, that it was against God or their religion to be trans, non-binary, gay, lesbian, etc., I could not even count if I tried, unfortunately. Although the relationship between religion and LGBTQ plus people can vary greatly, some of the world's largest religions hold negative views and share negative messages about the LGBTQ plus community. This can range from subtle discouragement, explicitly forbidding same-sex practices, actively opposing social acceptance of LGBTQ plus identities, or the execution of people engaging in homosexual acts. One thing I hear about and talk about more frequently than I would like is conversion therapy. And this is a practice that seeks to change the sexual orientation of LGBTQ plus youth. It is unfortunately not outlawed completely, despite being rejected by every mainstream mental health organization for decades. However, what we know from years of research is that conversion therapy is ineffective and harmful, leading to outcomes such as depression, anxiety, drug use, homelessness, and suicide. Many conservative religious groups promote the concept that an individual can change their sexual orientation or gender identity through prayer and religious efforts, which not only invalidates their identity, but can cause further feelings of shame, exclusion, rejection, and fear. In some denominations, LGBTQ plus individuals are barred from being members of the religious community or being ordained as clergy. Other denominations will welcome LGBTQ plus individuals into their religious home while simultaneously teaching that homosexuality is a sin or that transgender individuals are their biological sex and there's no difference between sex and gender, which science tells us that there is. It goes to the concept of love the sinner, hate the sin, which I'm sure we have all heard, which is actually problematic because the statement innately holds conflicting attitudes towards sexual minorities, which is actually found to increase negative attitudes towards sexual minorities. In some ways, this phrase, so love the sinner, hate the sin, allows individuals to maintain their negative attitudes towards a group without internally feeling prejudice. This idea goes to a broader concept of cognitive dissonance, which I have talked about on this podcast, where you are holding two conflicting thoughts or beliefs at the same time, and because you are doing that, it causes distress, and in turn, to reduce that distress, you lean towards your previously held belief, and that belief actually becomes stronger. Religious messages about LGBTQ individuals, namely that it is a sin, or that God will not accept or love you for who you are can cause an inner conflict for LGBTQ plus individuals, especially those that also hear the message that God loves all his children 
or individuals that know their relationship with God and feel loved and accepted by God. And yet that message or what they feel is different than what is being preached. And this conflict can lead to feelings of distress and confusion within the individual. Earlier, I talked about purity culture and how it is framed within heterosexual relationships and does not even address gender identities outside of the binary. So outside of the blatant messages from religion saying gay is a sin, um, by not discussing anything outside of heteronormative sexual orientations can cause a lot of confusion. Shame and repression of sexual orientations or gender identities that fall outside of the cisgender heterosexual norm. This repression, shame, confusion, etc., can lead to unprocessed feelings that can result in anxiety and depression, amongst other things. Another area that came up a lot when I surveyed my Instagram followers was trauma surrounding messages that made individuals feel shameful or that they weren't good enough. So I'm pulling out Brene Brown here, um, but Brene Brown defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I've already touched on shame with regard to sexuality, mental health, LGBTQ plus identities, as well as during previous parts of this podcast, but shame goes broader than those specific areas. At the core of shame in religion is this underlying idea of fear. Fear of God, fear of doing wrong, fear that we are not good enough, fear that we won't get into heaven, fear of judgment, just fear. And if a religion is based on fear, it is going to cause uncomfortable emotions among its followers. Winnell, who coined the term religious trauma syndrome, um, in 1993, she discussed dogmatic religions often viewing emotions and thoughts through a hierarchy, with emotions such as fear, envy, sadness, hate, and lust categorized as, quote, sinful or, quote, less mature than positive emotions such as love and compassion. So some religion sends the message that you have to only experience positive aspects of human nature, which is impossible. (laughs) And if you are striving to only experience the positive aspects of human nature, you are ultimately going to have feelings of guilt, shame, and low self-esteem. Many religious beliefs also entail the constant message that there is something that we need to change about ourselves to be closer to God or to be more like Jesus constantly feeling like we need to change or strive towards God's standards of perfection naturally can cause us to feel like we're not good enough or that there is something innately flawed or wrong with us. We also often see defense strategies driven by fear of the consequences that we are not complying or complying with or being able to attain these religious standards, whether it's emotional standards or practical standards that are upheld by the religion, which ultimately result in more feelings of shame, guilt, never feeling good enough, because in reality, these standards are unattainable. Another common response I received was feeling manipulated or gaslit by religion, ultimately resulting in trauma. If you are unfamiliar with the term gaslighting, it's a form of manipulation defined as the act of undermining another person's reality by denying facts, the environment around them, or their feelings. The person who is on the receiving end of gaslighting ultimately ends up questioning their own reality. 
1987 book on religious manipulation by Yusuf Bala Usman defines religious manipulations as essentially controlling the action of a person or group without that person or group knowing what the goals, purpose, and method of that control, and without even being aware that a form of control is being exercised on them at all. We can think about this as blindly following religious teachings without questioning why or considering alternate perspectives, which may actually be discouraged within a religious organization. So an example of manipulation or control in religion may be religious systems that use the fear of God and hell and social ostracism to motivate and control individuals, which not surprisingly can become toxic and harmful. It can also be confusing that if that same religion is using God as a fear tactic, is at the same time saying God is a God of love, God loves all his children, is always with you, you need to lean on him, etc., which can come across as conflicting messages. The use of fear to motivate faith is widespread in conservative and fundamentalist churches and could lead to feelings of eternal damnation, compartmentalizing, and repressing aspects of the self, and trauma, along with feelings of guilt. We see a theme of guilt and shame coming up a lot here. I already talked about mental health, but another way manipulation may be seen in religions is preying on vulnerable individuals who are struggling with their mental health as a way to, quote, get them closer to God. Going back to something I mentioned a few moments ago about being unable to question religious teaching or alternate perspectives, many religious groups teach in a way that conveys that there is only one right way and all other perspectives are wrong. This is actually another area of religious trauma that was suggested for me to talk about when I polled my Instagram followers, the idea of exclusion or that outsiders are wrong. And I feel like it fits well with this idea of manipulation and gaslighting. So many religions teach that their way is the right way and that anyone who has beliefs outside of what they believe is wrong. This leads to prejudice, hate, intolerance and segregation of people who do not hold the same beliefs. We see this a lot with Islamophobia among Christians, despite the teachings of Islam and Christianity actually being quite similar. Additionally, not being able to question teachings or think for yourself causes individuals that do not question or that do want to question to feel shame or potentially shunned from their community. It also limits a person's ability to think for themselves or think critically. There are so many other ways religion can manipulate individuals. Indoctrine of children before they have the capacity to think critically, restrictions on sexual activity leading to guilt, unattainable rules of behavior, afterlife as a reward if you follow the religion and punishment of hell if you don't, characterizing humans as sinners who need to be saved, among so many others. There are also so many other areas um, that individuals may have experienced religious trauma in, but those were the most popular answers I received and the most popular areas that I saw when uh, looking into the literature. So what are the impact and outcomes of religious trauma? So religious trauma symptoms may vary, but include difficulties across emotional, interpersonal, and cognitive realms. In the emotional realm, As discussed earlier, religious and spiritual messages may constrict the range of feelings a person can experience and express, for example, shaming the experience of emotions such as bitterness, rage, anger, and pride, and thus individuals suppress these, quote, bad or, quote, negative emotions and never learn how to sit with, cope, or regulate them. 
This can lead to a number of psychological difficulties, including depression, anxiety, guilt, addiction, and compulsive behaviors. In the interpersonal realm, messages about roles of women in relationships, purity culture, and otherness, all those things that we already discussed, as well as poor emotion regulation skills and suppressing or compartmentalizing aspects of the self can all negatively impact how we relate to others. In the cognitive realm, religious trauma can restrict our thought patterns, promoting legalistic black and white thinking, and difficulty with free association, fantasy, creative thought, and problem solving. Religious trauma shares many of the same symptoms as PTSD, including avoidance of stimuli that remind the individual of the trauma and intense distress when exposed to said stimuli. People who have experienced religious trauma may not be able to tolerate the distress experienced when participating in any kind of organized religion and thus avoid religious environments, events, people, or reading materials. Religious trauma is often a factor that brings individuals to therapy, including depression, anxiety, and relationship issues. However, these individuals may not also mention their religious history for a long time or may not even recognize that their symptoms are due to their religious trauma. Many people who have been harmed by religion still yearn for spiritual connection. Thus, not all individuals who experience religious trauma abandon religion. Many actually find spiritual growth by working through their trauma. So although not a formal study by any means, when I surveyed my Instagram followers about their experiences with a religious trauma, one of the questions I asked was regarding their current experience with religion after experiencing religious trauma. So 32% reported that they were spiritual, but not religious. 28% reported that they were agnostic or atheist, and 24% reported they were still religious. Then another 16% reported they were unsure. I did not run statistical analyses on these numbers by any means, but I would argue that 32%, 28%, and 24% are not largely different from one another. And if we look at just those who have some type of faith spirituality, that's 66% of those who responded. So the last thing I want to touch on is healing from religious trauma. Therapy with someone who has experience and understanding in treating religious trauma can be immensely helpful. And as I always say on this podcast, I recognize accessing therapy is a privilege and in our country, unfortunately. So both individual and group therapy can be helpful with the group aspect um, being helpful because it helps individuals realize that they are not alone. If you have experienced religious trauma and still yearn to have a spiritual connection, finding a church, temple, mosque, or religious community in general who is progressive in nature, understands religious trauma, and acknowledges and validates what you have gone through can be extremely beneficial for your healing. Connect with others on social media. I have found so many great accounts of individuals who openly talk about their religious trauma, and most have either become pastors or therapists themselves, which I think is really cool. Seek out resources from individuals with your experiences. You can find podcasts, blog posts, etc. to seek encouragement, advice, and community from those who have gone through similar experiences. Journal about your experiences. Journaling is a great healing exercise and allows you to get your internal thoughts and feelings outside of yourself and on paper. Educate yourself by seeking out information that explicitly contradicts what you have been taught. We do not grow 
change and learn if we only seek out information that aligns with our previously held beliefs. By seeking out information that contrasts such, it can be helpful to open your eyes to alternative perspectives and help you heal. And lastly, get to know your body. Whether you have shame from being a woman, from purity culture, from identifying as LGBTQ+, or any other reason religion made you feel shame about yourself, your body, you, your person as a whole, get to know your body and yourself without shame because you have nothing to be ashamed of. So thank you for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk. I know I talked about so much, yet I feel like I just scratched the surface of such a complex topic. I hope you learned something or gain new insights. As always, I would love feedback or any ideas that you have for future episodes. So I just appreciate you joining me, spending time with me, and supporting the podcast. So thank you so much, and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.